Welcome to MI Insider, a show where Mercer Islanders give their perspectives on issues here at home and across the world. I'm Miles Avales, and my goal is to highlight the people behind the headlines. Now let's get into it. Twenty years ago, in the middle of the night, a group of men plunged into the murky waters of Lake Washington. Equipped with wetsuits, snorkeling gear, and headlamps, they swam along the coast of Mercer Island, the moonlight guiding their way through the freezing waters. This midnight adventure wasn't just for the thrill, but for something much more consequential. You see, the men were working for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to monitor the juvenile Chinook salmon in Lake Washington, which had recently become an endangered species. They were tasked with tracking the salmon's movements and investigating the habitat loss which was leading to their demise. I recently had the opportunity to speak with Sergio Camacho, who is one of the snorkelers who took part in this study all the way back in 2003. I began working with uh, with fish and wildlife because I studied ecology in, in college, and um, I found a position with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and I was lucky enough to get hired after I applied. I did have a little bit of experience. I had volunteered before with a buddy that was in college. When I was hired, I was hired as a biological technician with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and um, we were trying to determine what the effects of shoring and built-up areas on the shoreline had on habitat for salmon. So we figured a lot of stuff out, but we had to find out if salmon runs were affected by all of these built-up areas. And what was what was the cause of these built-up areas? Like what was negatively affecting the salmon? Well, just doing away with overhanging uh, woody vegetation. So even some of the large maples that naturally hang on the on the edge, what's called the littoral zone of Lake Washington. So that provides refuge and, and a lot of people that were building up their they're, they basically had docks and uh, in places like Mercer Island as well, you had people that had little docks for their nice leisure boats and these areas were doing away with habitat. So those are the things that we wanted to find out. We needed to determine what effect that and shoring, making bulkheads. If if you look at some of the edges around Lake Washington, you'll see there's rocks and stuff. And so how do the salmon rely on this habitat for their survival? So again, it's refuge as uh, salmon outmigrate, they need to find spots. They basically do a leapfrog, if you, if you can think about it that way, in areas where they're, where they're protected and not eaten by larger fish or other predators. There's um, all kinds of birds and fish and just in general, they, want, they need to be protected. They need to find this place where they can hide. Can you talk a bit about more specifically like what your role was in this whole study? So we used boats. We used small boats and medium boats like a Boston whaler that were really cool. <laughs> it was it was it was nice. It was a great experience. But we also did uh, we did snorkeling, we did electrofishing, we did some um, seining, which is basically grabbing you know catching the fish with nets in different regions. Um, so my role as a biological technician was to perform all of these duties, include driving, including driving the boat gastric lavage, which was basically checking what what the contents inside the stomach of the fish were and labeling and all of these things. So it was all work that was done at night. So when you were monitoring these fish and measuring different aspects of them, what were you looking to see? 
Well, we needed to monitor the species. So we were looking in particular at Chinook, but we also wanted to see their size. And we also needed to see how far they went. You know, um, week after week, we would find fish that were marked. So we did some, uh, some, some stuff where we marked what's called the caudal peduncle, which is basically the thin area behind the fin, um, just behind where the fin connects with the body. We would put some translucent ink in there. It sounds cruel, but it wasn't. It, wasn't, it didn't hurt the fish. Translucent um, ink in there. And we could see the fish as they moved throughout Lake Washington, which was also pretty cool. And we dropped markers along the, the lake shore that we later marked with GPS, and we found out what their movement was. So you were out here snorkeling in Lake Washington by the coast of Mercer Island. And how long would you be out there at a time? Wow, we would stay out there uh, just as soon as the sun started going down in the afternoon until four in the morning, sometimes five. It was it was hard work, but it was really cool because it's stuff that most people don't do or ever do or, or they just see on on TV or National Geographic or something. I mean, we felt like like we were cool doing it, too. I think we all felt we were special. Um, but then we had cheeseburgers like at four in the morning because we were freezing. So why was, why was it necessary to do this at night? Oh, that's a good question. That's generally when the fish are less vulnerable. And then you get to see a lot of these fish uh, migrate, out-migrate when they're, when, when they're less vulnerable to, to predators. And how often would you go out and do this? So we would do this weekly. And uh, once in a while, we'd get a weekend off, or sometimes in the middle of the week, we would get a few days off. U.S. Fish and Wildlife put us up in a, in a hotel in Renton. So we would sleep there. We would have basically dinner at four in the, at four in the morning, sleep until late afternoon or rest and do whatever we had to do. And then we'd go back out. And as soon as the sun was coming down, we would get in our trucks and take our boats and everything with trailers. Once in a while, we had to go back to Olympia to the main office and, you know, re resupply and turn in all our lab work. So as you were marking these fish, was it hard to get a hold of them? No, there were areas where we knew we would find them. So where there was already natural vegetation that, you know, vegetation that hadn't been removed, it was almost guaranteed that we would see them there. But there are also places that uh, fish would always be found. So there were certain little beaches where, you know, there was substrate that they were really good at um, navigating through and there was enough uh, refuge for them. So we would capture them with nets, which is what's called seining. And then we would document their lengths uh, of each fish and their species. Then we would put them in something called SR-222, which is a, it's a chemical that would basically knock them out so that we could, you know, before we measure them actually. And then we would put the ink in them and we'd put them in fresh water so they would come back too. And then we could release them again. And most of those survived. We'd see them later. Okay. So to get more into exper into your experience, what were some of the most interesting or surprising things you saw while you were out there? Well, there were areas in, in Lake Washington that when we were snor snorkeling at night, it was just really scary because there was there was pilings and it looked like some kind of horror film. And if um, if you can imagine, you know, fish were sometimes very big fish, white fish or carp uh, that are that are in there uh, would be next to you. They would all of a sudden move. They would get startled, but they would scare you, too, because you didn't know. I mean, your peripheral vision didn't let you see everything that was happening down there. It was so dark. And you were always focused on your headlamp. 
And these were these were times when it seemed a little scary because it was so deep in areas that it was, you know, 20 feet. You couldn't really see. The drop from the edge of, of the lake was so pronounced that you couldn't really see what was to your left. You could sometimes make out what was on your right, but there was on your left, there was only pilings and darkness. So if a fish darted in front of you, you didn't and you didn't know what it was. I mean, you can't expect a, an alligator or anything like that, but you're out there by yourself, you know, in, in, in very dark places, tired, cold, <laughs> and, uh, and it does startle you. It, it startles you, but it, it's fun at the same time. I mean, you live on the adrenaline. And can you talk about a certain incident you had with an onshore resident? Yeah, there was a, a, a resident, a senior resident in, in Mercer Island, and we were in North Mercer Island doing some taking some surveys around three in the morning and uh 9-11 had happened uh, a couple years prior i think the the person got up to get a drink of water and we're out there looking like frogmen with our headlamps and and lamps in our hands to to count the fish and to identify them in a stretch that's about 150 meters like swimming under docks and under boats making sure that we could count all the fish and he saw the lights and he saw two subjects out there that must have really startled him because he came out with a 38 special, you know, saying, I'm going to shoot you guys. <laughs> and uh, and it was pretty scary. As we got up, he, I think he got even more scared. You know, he was just startled. The guy was, oh, I was afraid he was going to have some kind of episode or, or a t an attack or something. Eventually, we calmed him down. His wife came out startled as well. But but it was a, a a situation that was just scary, you know. This it's scary because of the gun. I mean, if if he would have gotten startled enough, I think he would have shot us. It's crazy to think about that because if you're just on a dock or like by your house in the middle of the night, and then you see two people in snorkels like converging on your location, you know, it'd be yeah, kind of terrifying. You have to put yourself in his situation. He did what was normal, what was natural. I mean. We're lucky we survived that he didn't shoot us. Yeah. Uh, are there any other like feelings or memories from the experience that stand out? Well, the, the whole experience was um, was very exciting. You know, we did stuff that was really, really cool. Uh, the information we were gathering was important. Uh, everything we did, I feel, was important, was very important for, for fish and for the city. But the camaraderie with, with some of the guys, you know, the teamwork was was a lot of fun how we supported each other using boats and doing stuff that was that a lot of people just want to do but they never get a chance to yeah what kind of things did you think about in those long nights while you were out there in the lake i always thought about the impact we were we were going to have you know i thought okay maybe in the future this is this is something that's going to be looked at you know and i'm part of it and uh talking about kind of some of that impact can you describe the effect that the study had and what they learned from it? Overall, I think they realized that, um, and they knew it was just, I think, you know, that it's, it was already well known by a lot of fish biologists that, um, you know, that, that fish rely on certain habitat, but this was to substantiate that. And, and we, we were able to do that. We were able to change the way people were doing things. Um, so a lot of, people want to build something, they have to have a biological assessment. If any species is on the endangered species list, then you have to have a biological assessment. And they have what's called no-take rules, 
So basically you can't do anything that damages a species or interferes with, with its well-being. Um, in, in some occasions when, when the species is, is only threatened but not endangered, they may let people do something, but they have to do something called biological remediation. So if they destroy a small piece in one spot, they have to restore you know, 10 times that amount somewhere else to make up for the damage that they did. So what did these structures look like that that was supposed to imitate the natural habitat of the fish? So they have they have stuff that um, and if you go, you can drive by the Cedar River and you'll be able to see anchored woody debris. So they have large woody debris, small woody debris and overhanging vegetation. And you'll be able to see some of that 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 is not necessarily it's not um, I mean, you could say it's man made, but it's just anchored. It's in there with cables or some kind of ties to keep it in place. I remember on one occasion, while we were doing the work, a gentleman was walking his dog and he said, you guys need to clean this area up. There's a lot of <laughs> woody vegetation out here. And he didn't realize what we're doing is trying to keep this vegetation in place to, to make sure the fish survive. Interesting. So they essentially like pretty much just recreated the natural habitat that had already they been. They basically in. recreated natural habitat. So there's areas where they put in um, willows and other other species that survive on on the shore, cottonwood and other, and they have over, overhanging vegetation that um, serves as refuge as well, along with those large anchored pieces of, of woody debris. All right. Well, I think that's about all the time we have today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. It was interesting speaking with you and reliving all of these different feelings and. It was so exciting, you know, when I was doing it, but it's a memory that um, that just uh, endures. Thanks again to Sergio Camacho for coming on the show to share his amazing experience from the depths of Lake Washington. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of MI Insider. You can listen to the show live on Thursdays at 7 a.m., or as a podcast, which can be found on the KMIH website. But for now, keep listening to 88.9 The Bridge.